This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers issued 71 new pardons today, bringing his total to 263 pardons during his term as governor. The Associated Press reports that Evers is on track to issue more pardons than any other Wisconsin governor in recent history. Former GOP Governor Scott Walker issued zero pardons during his eight years in office. Former Governor Jim Doyle, a Democrat, still holds that record as he issued about 300 pardons during his eight years in office. Evers' pardons don't erase or eradicate prior convictions, but they do restore the right to vote, be on a jury, hold public office, and own a gun. Also today, the governor issued an executive order that seeks to expedite the application process for those seeking pardons. Wisconsin lags behind many other states in getting the HIV-preventing prescription drug PrEP to those who need it. PrEP reduces the chances of getting HIV through sex by 99%, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that in 2018, the uptake of PrEP among the state's vulnerable populations was less than 9%. The FBI reported a 44% increase in hate crimes in Wisconsin from 2019 to 2020. According to Channel 3072, hate crimes were perpetrated in 2020 compared to 50 in 2019. But the reliability of that data is questionable, according to an investigation conducted by WISC-TV. That report detailed numerous flaws in the hate crime reporting process and indicated that the actual number of hate crimes is likely higher than the FBI's reported numbers. A new report from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources reveals that about one-third of the state's trash in recent years is food waste. 21% of the state's trash is paper, and plastic comprises about 17% of the waste found in Wisconsin's landfills. The DNR has spent the past year analyzing 14 landfills across the state. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that collectively those 14 landfills represent about 72% of Wisconsin's municipal waste. A candidate in Wisconsin's 2022 U.S. Senate race is facing five criminal counts of embezzlement. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Shantia Lewis, who is also a Milwaukee Alder, was charged today with illegally raking in more than $20,000 in campaign funds and false travel reimbursements from the city of Milwaukee. In their 43-page complaint, Milwaukee County prosecutors accused Lewis of defrauding the city and her campaign of at least $21,660. Wisconsin's hemp industry is being handed over to the feds next year. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the program will be transitioned from the state of Wisconsin to the U.S. Department of Agriculture on January 1st. The transition will mark the end of the four-year state-run pilot program. State officials say the transition shouldn't have any major impacts on Wisconsin's hemp farmers. However, it will eliminate the requirement for farmers to receive annual state licenses, which are being replaced with three-year federal licenses. It will also allow more testing options for the state's hemp farmers. Madison's forthcoming Center for Black Excellence is launching a capital fundraising campaign. The Capital Times reports that the fundraiser has already received about $7,500 in donations. The first $50,000 in donations will be from members of the black community, according to the center's leaders. After October 15th, the fundraiser will open to the greater public. The Center for Black Excellence will be located on the 700 block of West Badger Road 
although design details and construction are yet to begin. And now here's your daily COVID-19 numbers. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that the state's seven-day rolling average of new cases currently stands at 1,583. Meanwhile, nearly 52% of the state's total population, that's more than 3 million people, have completed their vaccination series. About 75% of people within the Madison Metropolitan School District have been fully vaccinated, and that's roughly 183,600 people. And now on to today's top stories. Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board has narrowed the field to 15 candidates for the city's new independent police monitor. The monitor and board, acting in conjunction, will be tasked with overseeing and recommending policy changes for the Madison Police Department. WORT reporter Nate Wegihot takes us from here. For about a year, Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board has been searching for its other half, an independent police monitor. Together, the board and monitor could establish more community control over the city's police department, a process years in the making and a demand of protesters during last summer's demonstrations. Board Vice Chair Shadira Kilfoy Flores says that the field has been narrowed down to 15 finalists. We had 30 applicants from around the country. 15 of those uh, met our minimum qualifications and are in the process of being assessed. So it's going really well. The Independent Police Monitor job and Oversight Board were initially created last September. The Independent Monitor application window opened earlier this summer and closed on August 16th. Kilfoy Flores says the 15-candidate field will be whittled down further in the coming weeks. The candidates will go through two rounds of interviews with the board, which is currently in the process of writing interview questions. Kilfoy Flores says a final candidate will likely be chosen in mid-October. Kilfoy Flores says the year-long wait will be worth it as the board is taking their time to truly choose the best candidate for the position. So we're trying really hard to not rush the process. Um, we did extend the application date so we could get more applicants. I uh, now, yeah, we're just looking forward to moving on and hopefully getting the best qualified candidate that we can. Even after the position has been filled, change will not come overnight, Kilfoy Flores says. She says hiring the independent monitor is an important first step in the process of police reform in Madison. We're also really trying to figure out how to incorporate more um, community input into the hiring of the independent police monitor, but also into what it is that the community needs, right? Like, what is the vision for the community? What are the needs of the community? The process comes as the city of Madison faces a lawsuit over the composition of the Community Control Board. The lawsuit comes from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm representing local conservative David Blaska. Blaska, who is white, maintains that he was racially discriminated against when he was not selected to serve on the Community Control Board. Last week, the city of Madison filed an answer to Blaska's complaint, denying that they had racially discriminated against Blaska. City attorney Mike Haas says a pretrial conference is being held on September 30th to see if Will and Blaska will be able to move forward with a lawsuit. According to the city's job listing, the independent police monitor will make between $104,000 and $140,000 per year. The Capital Times reports that that's about the same salary range as some city department directors. From W. 
WORT News. I'm Nate Wagihout. A legal settlement between Madison Gas and Electric and Wisconsin's Citizen Utility Board might mean lower utility bills for Madisonians in the near future. The Citizens Utility Board, or CUB, is a nonprofit organization that advocates for lower cost and more reliable utility services across the state. For more about the settlement, WRT producer Jonah Chesser spoke with Tom Content, CUB's executive director. I'm an MGE customer, as are many of our listeners here in Madison. What does this settlement mean for me? Well, the big the big thing that's been controversial with MGE's rates over the last almost a decade now is the the facilities charge on electric bills, and that's kind of what we call the fixed charge or the customer charge. There's a couple of different names for it, but no matter what it's called, people have been griping about it because it this is it became a really controversial case when MGE sought to increase uh, a massive increase in the fixed charge um, and ended up going up to $19 a month. So that's $19 a month just for being a customer, let alone, you know, how much energy you're using in your house. And so, and, and other utilities around the state were also moving to increase their fixed charges. And there's actually one uh, Green Bay utility that has an even higher fixed charge of $21 a month. But what what Cub has been working on, we've we've been continuing to fight on this issue since it first emerged, um, and we've been holding the line against further increases in recent years. And now today, what with this settlement, we're really excited to see that the fixed charge is going to be coming down 21 percent over the next couple of years. So that fixed fee of nineteen dollars a month is going to drop to fifteen dollars a month in twenty twenty by twenty twenty three. It's a two year rate case. So it, the, it, the drop is happening and the, the decrease in the fixed charge is happening in phases, assuming this is all approved by the Public Service Commission. You mentioned something there a minute ago I want to dive a little bit deeper into, and that fixed charges from utility providers across the state are, are sort of steadily increasing across the board. Why is that? So the utilities were moving to increase those, and in, in part, it's a risk reduction move on their part. You know, there, there were concerns about moving more of the the bill from the the energy charge to the fixed charge and from a from a utility point of view that reduces the risk of the revenues coming in whereas if the more that's on the energy charge the more control customers have individual customers have to actually take steps to reduce their costs through energy efficiency whether that's you know more led bulbs whether that's a higher efficiency appliance, whether that's just using, turning those lights off and unplugging the phantom loads and uh, things like that. So essentially, from, from our point of view, we advocate for savings for customers to basically be able to have the control in their own um, space um, with their own use of smart thermostats and other devices to really have an impact on their own energy costs. And having a lower fixed charge enables you to control your electricity use, and help save energy and money. Can we revisit the history of this case? I understand this began between uh, y'all at Cub and MG&E a few years ago. Walk me through the process here. What yeah. does the past few years look like for you? Yeah, so the big the big case was in 2014, and, and a bunch of stakeholders involving, including Cub and Environmental Law and Policy Center and AARP um, and a whole bunch of other, and renewable energy advocates and others got involved to object to what would have been a massive increase in the fixed charge and 
at the time, there was talk of moving the vast majority of a typical customer's energy bill toward those fixed fees, you know, potentially even upwards of $69 a month or something. It was a, it was a huge, it would have been a dramatic and drastic and, and basically untenable change from our point of view. And what happened that year was the Public Service Commission was flooded with public comments and the public hearings um, that year for that case were the most crowded that anybody had seen. Yet the PSC still approved that back then. And yet since then, CUB has been, every few years, every uh, every other year, utilities come in for rate cases. And whenever there's been talk of the fixed charge, CUB has been working to hold the line against further increases. So since 2017, um, there have been no, no further increases in any fixed charge for any utility around the state. And this year, both for MG&E and Xcel Energy customers in Western Wisconsin, we've reached settlements that will actually bring those down. And the process is now that uh, it's a proposed settlement that includes CUB, it includes MG&E, it includes Renew Wisconsin, Green Wisconsin, others, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and others. Sierra Club also signed on in part to the settlement. But now now it, the whole package has to, it was just submitted to the Public Service Commission on Friday. Um, and now that has to be voted on at, later this year by the Public Service Commission. Reducing that fixed rate over the next few years to what you all reached in the settlement agreement, does that have like a time frame as in it will be held at that amount for the next five years? Or could MG&E theoretically, could they go back in 2024 and increase that again? Basically, is there is there some kind of hold on that to be sure that MG&E doesn't just increase it a year or two down the road? That's always a concern that they could come back. But I think I think my guess is that MG&E realized how controversial this became for customers and and they as you know their their motto is that they're the community energy company um and i think in terms of building goodwill i think i'm not expecting them to come back for another increase but just in case they do we would be ready so this would be in the the 15 fee would be in place for for the year 2023 but i'm not expecting them to come in for another increase for 2024 i'm expecting that this would hold that would be my my hunch at this point but it's it's always hard to it's always hard to predict the future as they say so as i understand from the information cub has put out there were a few other outcomes of these negotiations with mgne in relation to uh, their deals with small businesses that have been impacted by the pandemic and the pandemic's economic uh, effect on those businesses can you walk me through those Happy to walk you through that. That's the uh, for small business in particular, we were able to negotiate a small business economic recovery program. Um, it's a one-time or one-year one discount on electricity bills. It would amount to about a 22% discount. For so, so, for instance, imagine a, sto- a storefront that got boarded up during the pandemic, and then somebody's looking to reopen. This may not be the make-or-break thing for a small business owner, but we know that small business owners are struggling and. As the advocate for small businesses, as well as residential comfort customers, we wanted to see what we could craft for, for them. So this would yield about a 22% discount on a typical small business bill for the period of one year for the small business recovery program that MGD is proposing as part of this case. Tom, thanks so much for, for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about the settlement agreement that we haven't quite had a chance to touch on here today or that you feel folks should be aware of going forward? 
there's just a bunch of wins in here. So the, the, what I, the, the bottom line is there are tax credits rolling off. And so the, the bottom line is that there would be an increase to cut overall customer bills this year or next year. But we have a series of wins in here. And one of them is that the increase won't be as high as it would have been um, without our negotiation. So we were able to save $2 million off of the overall increase. And then we have some interesting, um, we're concerned about folks that are really struggling with their bills, um, including low income customers. And we think they should have access to energy efficiency, um, you know, whether, uh, measures like smart thermostats and through a collaboration and through this negotiation, MG&E has agreed to provide free thermostats to a group of low income customers. And then they're going to enroll them in their, what they call their bring your own device program. And that's a program that's pretty cool that allows people to, as well as mg and to actually turn down the air conditioning on the hot summer days and save customers money. It's really effective in helping overall mg and costs when, when electricity demand is highest. Um, what they do is they, they might actually boost your air conditioning earlier in the day on a particularly hot day, but then turn it off during those peak hours. And so you shouldn't see an impact comfort-wise. Um, but it helps reduce costs for everybody and helps make sure that they, that there aren't any power reliability challenges on those hot summer days. And the fact that we're able to bring in low-income folks, um, a group of low-income folks into that is is a real win in this case as well. So it's a lot of different things that add up to real dollars and cents benefits for customers, we think, over the next couple of years. Tom, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Tom Content is the executive director of Wisconsin's Citizens Utility Board. It's now 6.24 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, more than half of workers in Wisconsin's hospitality industry lost their jobs. It was the hardest hit industry during the pandemic, dislocating workers who are more likely to be women and people of color. But that may be an opportunity for increased strength in unions, according to a new report on workers in Wisconsin from UW-Madison researchers. For more, we turn to WRT reporter Carolina Bersian. The annual Working Wisconsin Report summarizes workers' perspectives on the state economy. Released over the Labor Day holiday weekend, the report divides worker experiences into four parts, jobs, unions, wages, and worker experiences. First, unions. The decline of unions in Wisconsin from 2011 to 2020 is four times as fast as the national average. 
a consequence of labor policies passed during former Governor Scott Walker's administration. Laura Dresser is the Associate Director of the Center on Wisconsin Strategy, or COWS, which issued the new report. She says that over the last decade, in the wake of Act 10, unionization has plummeted in the state. Structure of Act 10 was designed to deunionize the public sector in the state without explicitly disallowing unions. And it did that so that our public sector unionization rate goes from above 50 percent down to just above 20 percent. The right to work legislation in 2015 also had an impact. So Wisconsin goes from above average, uh, above national rates of unionization before those two pieces of state policy to well below. And we have losses. The share that we lose um, mirrors the worst in the region, which is Iowa. We're pretty close to that. Um, While the rest of the region mostly loses union density, but not not anywhere near the speed that we do. The report also looks at jobs in the wake of the pandemic. It finds that some industry sectors, professional and business services, utilities, transportation, and manufacturing industries lost very few jobs. The leisure and hospitality industry has lost more jobs than any other industry, impacting workers who are more likely to be women and people of color. The hospitality industry remains more than 17 percent below pre-COVID-19 employment. In what was already a hard industry to work with low wages, irregular schedules, and a lack of benefits, now employers are struggling to find employees. Dresser says it is possible that unionization could find a foothold. Having union representation will have real impacts on wages, but also especially scheduling issues and, and also probably safety and retention policy. We also see other ways that workers, whether formally organized um, through unions or informal forms of organizing also in the low-wage service sector, I think it really is critical that these jobs get remade into jobs that can really support a life rather than just being um, structured and presuming that workers have some other way to pay their rent. As of July of this year, unemployment held steady at 3.9 percent. At the peak of the pandemic in April 2020, unemployment peaked at 14.8 percent. According to the report, Wisconsin had about 114,000 fewer jobs available than it did before COVID-19. Reporting for WORT, I'm Carolina Bursia. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest news from the UW campus. Wildlife Weekly previews an annual rehabilitation conference. And Radio Astronomy stares at some exploding suns. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopewell here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. 
Every so often, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, Hope Carnot takes a look at some recent problems with the new digital Badgers football tickets. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by associate news editor Sam Henschel to talk about some problems that have come along with the new digital process for Badger football tickets. Thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Can you share what the digital process for tickets looks like this year and how it's different from the past when we had the paper tickets? Yeah, so in the past, when you would buy student section football tickets, um, you know, you would pay your deposit in like June or so, and then come the start of school, like end of August, early September, there would be a, you know, a, a section of days where you could go pick up your paper tickets in an envelope from Camp Randall. Um, this year it's different. so. Same process with having to go and put down your deposit in like June, let's say, and then they actually just sent out the links for all of the tickets a few weeks ago. So uh, if you bought student tickets, what you probably saw if you opened the email was one big email with a link to all of your tickets. And then from there, you can either, you know, take a screenshot and pull it up on your phone, or you can download it to your Apple wallet if you have an iPhone and then just slide up. Um, but that's the way that they're doing this. that this year. They won't be taking any paper tickets. They will just be scanning your ticket from your phone or your device. Mm -hmm. So a lot of students will get their season tickets and then sell off a few on Facebook. So what's kind of the dynamic of that Facebook page like? I mean, even during a semester a year when we didn't have digital tickets. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that now, um, it is so much easier to be scammed because, you know, there's not that dynamic of, oh, let's meet up in person and I'll give you this, you know, this physical ticket. Um, now it's a system that people aren't really familiar with. They don't meet up in person as much. At first, people didn't really know about the resources that were available to them to, you know, check if somebody is a student or not. Um, and also with it being digital, you know, people don't really understand where you can get these tickets. Um, or, you know, what counts as a valid ticket transfer. So, you know, there were people in the beginning of the year that would say, oh, I'm looking for a ticket for this game. And then somebody would comment on the post in this Facebook group, the UW-Madison Student Ticket Exchange, and say like, oh, I have five of them. And then, you know, from there, they'd be like, yeah, like I bought this group on StubHub or Vivid Seats or Ticketmaster for the student section, which you can't actually do. Um, and then, you know, they'd ask them for money and then, once they got the payment, they would immediately block the person trying to buy the ticket. Um, so obviously a little bit harder to do that in person because you're not, you know, once you meet up with these people, you can pay them on the spot and then they give you this physical ticket or they give you the ticket first and then you pay them something like that. So there's definitely a lot of risks with this system, I think. And there's also a lot that students might not know just because they're not familiar with the system. Yeah, so you heard from a couple of students who were scammed out of tickets when they were trying to get them on the Facebook page. So how did they describe what happened to them? 
Yeah, definitely. So my friend was looking for a ticket to the game against Notre Dame at Soldier, Soldier Field in Chicago, and she got scammed out of her money. Um, you know, basically what happened with her interaction was somebody messaged her and they seemed legit. She had kind of like looked at their Facebook profile and thought, oh, okay, yeah, this seems real enough. And then she ended up paying them over PayPal and never got anything with it. She never got a ticket. You know, they blocked her after that. Um, they never answered. And at this point, um, Soldier Field tickets weren't even available to transfer and they still aren't actually. I just sold mine to a friend and I still can't transfer it over. So, you know, if you're looking for tickets to that game, just keep your eye out. Um, but, you know, she was really, really disappointed because this was something that she was looking forward to. And she did end up getting her money back. But from what I understand, that was also a long process um, just because of the dynamics of how she did it and like the settings that they made her choose when she was paying it. So definitely a disappointing thing to have happen to her. So you also talked to a spokesman from UWPD. What did he say about what students can do to avoid getting scammed? Yeah, I did. So first of all, he recommended just really verifying their profile and verifying their name. Um, there's actually a student directory at UW-Madison where you can confirm if certain people go here just by looking up their name. Um, another thing he recommended was to meet up like in a public area somewhere with cameras or high visibility, same as how you would do in the past with the paper tickets and just watch them transfer the ticket to you as well as watching like them pay you or you pay them. Um, that lowers the chance of being scammed. And then the other big thing that he recommended was making sure that if somebody's selling you a ticket, you do not have them send you a screenshot. They have to physically transfer the, st the ticket on the athletic site because if they send you a screenshot, if they somehow got to the game before you did, um, they would get in with that ticket, but then you would just be out of luck and out of money because you know their ticket is still active and doesn't get transferred to your account. So essentially it would be like two people with the same ticket, whoever gets their first wins. Yeah, it seems like this has also been a hot topic among students on Reddit and Facebook too on that page. What were some of the tips that they suggested to other people to avoid getting scammed? Yeah, definitely. All very similar tips. Um, you know, a lot of times what ha will happen on Facebook is somebody completely legit will be like, oh, I'm selling or buying this ticket. And then somebody who's trying to scam somebody out of that will, you know, steal their information, like steal the, their profile picture, their cover photo, um, maybe put some personal information on the page, things like that. And then, you know, use that account to scam other people. Um, on Facebook, I've seen a lot of people, you know, having those interactions and then, calling these people out by name and saying like, oh, this person tried to scam me. And then the real person will comment and be like, why would you say that about me? That's not true when it's actually somebody that is stealing all of their information. Um, so checking on Facebook, just like looking around, seeing if there's actual personal information on there, you know, obviously verifying it with the student directory, um, seeing how old or new the account is. And then, you know, always making sure that, you know, if there is a way that you were ever scammed, you would be able to get your money back. So I know on PayPal and on Venmo, there's an option where you can pay somebody for a good or a service. And that is backed by a refund policy. Um, I know that sometimes with Venmo, if you don't pay like that, you will only get your money back one time uh, if you make any kind of mistake. So, you know, using that setting is also a good way to ensure that if something does happen, there's a chance of you getting your money back.
Yeah. So just in general, I mean, how do you think students are feeling about this new digital ticket process after we've used paper tickets for so many years? I think they're confused. Um, and at first I was too. I I was kind of like, okay, I'm not really sure how this is going to work for me to get my tickets, but I'll just wait it out. Um, I wouldn't consider myself bad with technology, but maybe just a little bit doubtful sometimes that things will work. So, you know, like I mentioned before, I'm selling my, so my Soldier Field ticket to a friend of mine. And, you know, this isn't like a friend I know very well. I was connected to him by somebody that saw that he wanted a ticket for it and I just happened to be selling mine. Um, so we do have a mutual friend, but he was definitely weary at first of like, should I really pay this person if she's not gonna give me this ticket right away? Um, because like we had to write, if you want to sit in a group for that game, you have to register together. So he ended up registering his ticket, like under my name with his friend group, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think there is a little bit of, of wariness and a little bit of trust that goes into this as well, because on one hand, if you want a ticket for a game early enough, like you're going to have to pay for it to ensure that's yours. But then there's always the question of, well, will this person actually like send me this ticket or Will they block me? Will they never talk to me again? Will they just not give it to me? Will something come up? Will they end up going and just keep my money? Yeah, is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story? Yeah, I would just say, you know, be careful. Um, I really, really want to stress the the photo screenshot thing. Um, you know, don't do that. Make sure that they physically transfer it to your UW account. Otherwise you will not get your ticket. Um, the other thing to be aware of is that they only sell student section tickets on the UW Badgers website. They don't sell them through a third party seller. So they don't sell them on Vivid Seats, Ticketmaster, SeatGeek, anything like that. So if somebody offers that, you automatically know that they're trying to scam you. And chances are, if somebody reaches out and says, oh, I have six tickets for the student section to this game, there's no way under any circumstance that that would happen. So, you know, don't take their word for it. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Next spring, people who help rescue wild animals for a living from across the country will be coming to Madison for the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association's annual symposium. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg previews the conference and explains how Madisonians can get involved. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, we're going to be talking about the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association. Have you ever heard of it? 
Is it something you've ever thought about? Maybe a career in wildlife rehabilitation in your future? I don't know how many of our WORT listeners here are interested in wildlife, or if you're a student, or maybe you're a professional in the field already, maybe a relatable field. Uh, But we are excited to announce that our national conference, uh, NWRA, is actually coming to Madison in March of 2022. We know, you know, COVID situation pending. It might be a mixture of virtual or in-person events. Um, But this is how I got into the field as a wildlife rehabilitator myself. And for those of us, there are six of us full time on staff here at the Dane County Humane Society. All of us have degrees um, in some sort of wildlife background or veterinary medicine. And it's just, you know, bringing the people together that have different backgrounds to share knowledge about wildlife and sometimes even, you know, species specific information and rehabilitation methods is just incredibly valuable for people in our field. So if you haven't ever checked it out, you can go to the website just to learn a little bit about NWRA. Uh, It's NWRA Wildlife. And really the mission of that program, and I call this our national program because it's how we learn to become really rehabilitators and how we study to get there. They're dedicated to improving and promoting the profession of wildlife rehabilitation and its contributions to preserving natural ecosystems. So to me, that says, you know, we're looking at wildlife health topics. We're looking at welfare topics. We're looking at conservation topics. So they're actually um, going to be, uh, you know, for the next couple of months here, uh, opening a registration for the conference, uh, which will be at the Concourse Hotel downtown here in Madison. Um, I'm hoping to present on a topic. I've I've presented a couple of times at the National Conference about various topics, uh, such as research uh, in wildlife rehabilitation when I studied red-tailed hawk survival from after rehabilitation post-release. I've also presented about um, using online training system programs to help train volunteers and interns that are learning in the field. So it doesn't have to necessarily be about wildlife rehabilitation. Our theme this year is called wellness for wildlife. So, you know, that could be wellness for yourself as a person. It could be human well, well-being. well uh, Mental and physical health is really important, especially now in the COVID time situation. You know, we really, as rehabilitators, need to be at our best, you know, mentally and physically, not drained or experiencing compassion fatigue, which is a topic in itself in the veterinary medicine or wildlife or nonprofit world. So how can we kind of, you know, ease that burden? Um, You know, how do we treat ourselves well so that we can treat our animals well? And our goal is to give the best care possible to any animal that comes into a rehabilitation center. Um, And sometimes it can be a very stressful job because we get hundreds and then thousands of animals every year, especially in those urban locations. So how do you manage intake and how do you um, triage those patients and figure out, okay, which animals are the most severe and need the help right now versus animals that maybe could wait a couple of hours for an exam because they were cold and dehydrated and you just can let them sit and warm up for a little while before you actually look at them. Um, So we're talking more uh, about how are people supposed to support themselves in this field, but then also how do we care the best for the wild animals in rehabilitation? Um, Other topics that I'm sure will come up in our conference, besides how to rehabilitate specific species, would probably be, um, you know, how are we conserving habitat for these species once they're released? Uh, Are there good areas in Madison or in the surrounding state, you know, DNR-owned land, or is there state, yeah, state land, or private property or conservation easements, anything like that, um, where we might be able to partner and say, okay, wildlife will have the best chance of survival when released at this location or in this type of area. How can we create more really good habitat for those animals so that they're not necessarily encroaching into those urban settings and getting themselves injured 
shared population dynamics. We're talking about, you know, disease transmission and overcrowding in certain areas. Uh, if a species just like, you know, has any, we've talked about so many on this segment, but, you know, conjunctivitis or maybe there's, a, you know, rabies, um, white nose syndrome for bats, the fungus. Maybe uh, we're talking about the unknown disease that's been spreading east. You know, when populations of wildlife are concentrated in an area, diseases can spread. It can also spread to other people if it's zoonotic, um, maybe to other species. So, you know, those are all important because rehabilitators are on the forefront seeing those sick animals coming in, seeing those injured animals in our facilities. So can we prevent it? Can we create more habitat? Can we conserve better habitat for them? Those are all parts of wellness for wildlife, right? Um, how do we keep our environment healthy? Do we have safe drinking water? Does that affect wildlife? You know, you could come up with so many different topics. Um, and if we're talking not even wildlife, what about how do you finance a nonprofit or how do you run a volunteer organization? Uh, how do you write grants, grant writing workshops? You know, there's there could be so many things that you include um, in a type of conference that's very integrative. So uh, I wanted to share this information because I know there are a lot of folks in Madison here that might be interested in learning about wildlife rehabilitation or maybe have something to share, something to offer that they could potentially talk about and maybe make a link into how does this apply to people that are rehabilitators or run a nonprofit? Do you have research that you're doing that, you know, holy cow, I'm working with you know, this species of wildlife, and I didn't know the rehabilitators might have them in their care. Maybe you're looking for a specific digestive enzyme or maybe a blood sample or feather sample. You know, those are the things that we really like to, as you know, as rehabilitators participate in, especially if there's research being done that could help our understanding and maybe our abilities to treat wildlife, um, depending on what the outcome of the study is. And the conference is in Madison in 2022, uh, March 1st through the 5th are those dates. NWRAWildlife.org and Dane County Humane Society, our Wildlife Rehabilitation Center right here, is the primary planning host, along with our two supporting organizations, Wisconsin Humane Society's Wildlife Center in Milwaukee and uh, the Wisconsin Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, which is our state group. So the three uh, orgs together putting on this big symposium through the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association in Madison, and we really hope to see you there, or maybe we will hear some lovely presentations about your professional life and how it applies to wildlife rehabilitation. So thanks for listening. Uh, this is our Wildlife Weekly segment. And uh, if you ever have any questions, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Rourke Hobbegger takes us inside an exploding supernova to examine one of the most powerful occurrences in the universe. The generic definition of a supernova is the explosion of a star. 
It is the end of the stellar evolution cycle. A new study published recently in Science Magazine provides evidence for a different type of supernova. This is Radio Astronomy on WORT 89.9, and I'm Rourke, your host for today. Let's go over supernovae. They are some of the brightest astrophysical phenomena in the universe. In most cases, when we observe a supernova in another galaxy, it outshines the rest of the galaxy. One star exploding is that bright. In general, astronomers divide supernovae into two categories, type 1 and type 2. Within those types are subcategories, but we'll just focus on the larger breakdown of type. Supernovae release a burst of electromagnetic radiation into the universe in all directions. This radiation is broadband, meaning it comes in a variety of frequencies. For example, if you changed the radio station from 89.9 to a different station and still heard my voice, then WORT would be doing a broadband broadcast. The broadband radiation from supernovae is more continuous. Almost every frequency is emitted. However, certain frequencies are emitted more than others, and some frequencies are damped by absorption. If there is a bunch of hydrogen near the explosion, it will absorb specific frequencies of light and re-radiate them in random directions. When we observe that light, we will see less of particular frequencies. Those frequencies are associated with the quantum jumps of an electron in a hydrogen atom. The effect of this absorption in our radio station example is one radio station being quieter than all the rest. Those quiet frequencies are the absorption lines in the spectrum of a supernova. Astronomers observe the spectrum of the supernova, and if it has hydrogen absorption lines, it is labeled as a type 2 supernova. If it does not have hydrogen absorption lines, then it is a type 1 supernova. Usually, this is a straightforward distinction, which is why astronomers use it to divide observations of different supernovae. However, even that information leaves the dynamics of a supernova undecided. How did all that energy in the form of light get emitted? In general, there are two explanations, core collapse supernova and thermal runaway supernova. A core collapse supernova is how the most massive stars die. Slowly, via nuclear fusion, they end up with a heavier and heavier core. Once the core is made of iron, the star can't fuse anymore. The eventual result is all the mass outside the core falls in and creates an intense explosion. A thermal runaway supernova happens when a white dwarf star accretes too much mass. This accretion of mass heats the white dwarf until it starts fusing carbon nuclei. This triggers a runaway process that leads to an explosion, similar to the core collapse event in a normal star. For a while, astronomers thought these were the only ways to trigger a supernova. Now, recent work in Science Magazine introduces a new trigger. Astronomers determined a supernova which happened between 1997 and 2017 is the result of a merger-triggered core collapse supernova. Instead of the slow process of thermal fusion building up to an iron core, this supernova was likely triggered when a compact companion ran through the star. A compact companion is a white dwarf star, a neutron star, or a black hole. This compact object running into its partner star caused that star to lose a bunch of mass. And eventually, that compact object completely disrupted the core of the star, which then underwent core collapse. Obviously, the fundamental process of core collapse is still responsible for the supernova in this case. But this new method produces a different spectrum of light, mainly due to the mass launched by the initial collision of the star and the compact object. Discovering evidence for alternative pathways to supernova explosions 
is an important area of research, and we are eagerly awaiting follow-up observations and future studies of supernovae similar to this one. In fact, it adds support to recent work suggesting that most stars are born in pairs and triplets, not alone. This merger-triggered supernova may be more common than we think. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Nate Weggehout and Carolina Bursium, and Nate Carlin continues to be on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lorenzen engineered the show. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.